we get started, um, there are probably way too many people who have keys to this building. And with the kind of equipment we're getting in here, that needs to be uh, controlled a lot more. Last night, uh, the building we know was secured around 9 or 10 o'clock, and yet when uh, uh, Kay came up here today to duplicate tapes, the back door was unlocked. So somebody was in here between last night and today, didn't secure the lock, and uh, we need to make sure that if you come in here, you secure the lock. Um, and also, if you are, have a key and you're not sure it's a current key, you better check with Ernie before you use it. We've had a couple of people who uh, we've had to change the lock about three times, change the key in the lock because one lock was bad a couple of, two or three times in the um, uh, last uh, month to six weeks. And a couple of people have not realized that and put an old key in the new lock and broken it off. So... Um, we need to, uh, everything is working okay right now, but uh, if you're not sure if your key is current, check with Ernie. He's in charge of the keys, okay? Ernie Dillon. Raise your hand, Ernie, so everybody knows who you are. But we need to make sure we make a priority of keeping this um, building secure. I'm losing my head this evening. Let's uh, bow our heads together have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and make them clear to us. Father, your word is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You have revealed to us everything we need to know for life and godliness, and we need not take this task lightly or ill-advisedly. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us as we study, to focus, and to concentrate. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in our 12th lesson of uh, God's plan for the ages, covenants and dispensations. And starting this evening, we're going to look at the real estate covenant and the Davidic covenant as part of the development in the Old Testament of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I have said in the past that there are three things we need to remember that ought to come to your mind immediately every time I say the Abrahamic Covenant. And that is land, seed, and blessing. Those are the three sections of the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, we are interlinking our study of covenants with dispensations because what moves the dispensations from one to the next is revelation from God. We have studied the meaning of the word dispensation, oikonomia, and that oikonomia means an administration. It's related to, or it's etymologically related to our English word, economy. So oikonomia means an administration. It's how God administers history during a certain period of time. The Greek word ion brings in the concept, the temporal concept. And so each dispensation is a progressive period in the unfolding of God's plan for human history. Now, in the Old Testament period, from creation to the cross, there are two broad ages. These are the age of the Gentiles from creation to Abraham, 
and then the age of Israel from the call of Abraham to the incarnation, really up to the cross in many ways. There's an overlap there, and we'll get into that when we get into our next dispensation, which is the Messianic dispensation. But right now, I just want to summarize what's going on in the Old Testament. Now, the reason I say that the age of Israel begins with Abraham and not with the founding of the nation at Mount Sinai is because once God called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he no longer worked through the human race as a whole, but he called out Abram, and from that moment on, God worked specifically through Abram and his descendants. So there is a definite shift in the way God is working. Revelation from that point on is restricted to Abraham and his descendants. Now, as we've looked at this, the first dispensation is the dispensation of perfect environment. It began with the creation covenant outlined in Genesis 1:28 to 30 and said to have been a covenant in Hosea Chapter 6, verse 7, where it states that Adam disobeyed God and broke the covenant. Each dispensation has a responsibility. The responsibility in the uh, age of perfect environment was to fulfill the covenant mandate, to fill the earth, but specifically to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The penalty for that would be spiritual death, Genesis 2:17. The failure was that, of course, Adam ate the fruit. The woman was deceived. The crucial act was Adam's disobedience because that plunged the human race into a spiritual death. He died spiritually at that point, was no longer able to have a relationship with God or to understand spiritual phenomena. Then that was followed by divine judgment, which is outlined in Genesis 3, 7 through 19. The judicial penalty is spiritual death. I can't say that enough. There are more and more things that go on in relation to understanding just the work of Christ on the cross that ultimately go back to confusion over the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is not the curse outline in Genesis 3, 7 through 19. Those are the consequences of spiritual death. Spiritual death is the penalty for sin. God told Adam, the day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. That was spiritual death. That is the judicial penalty separation from God. As a result of that, there were numerous consequences in the natural or the created realm, and in human relationships. And those are outlined in Genesis 3, 7 through 19 as part of the consequences for man's failure. At that point, in Genesis 3, 7 through 19, you basically also, along with the curse, it's a, a redefinition of the original creation covenant. That's okay. Everybody does that at least once. You can always tell who the visitors are because they, that's okay. You can always tell who the visitors are. They're not sure how it fits. And uh, they usually drop it at least once. And every now and then some veteran does it as well. And uh, we, uh, we don't do anything more than just uh, the third time you get baptized in Amos Lake in February. That's, <laughs> It's called, the, um, it's called the Founder's Day Penalty <laughs> because the original founders of this church, Dave Tongren's wife's great-great-great-grandmother, was one of the first baptized in Amos Lake when it was uh, frozen with about 18 inches of ice there and wore, what, 17 petticoats to keep warm. <laughs> I don't care how many petticoats you have on. You're still going to be cold. Okay, now that we've all calmed down, the second dispensation is conscience. Now, the reason the shift is because there are covenants that come in and make a shift. There is a modification of revelation. I'm going to stress that a lot because we're going to get to some things, not just today, but in the future that, that relate to that. Not every covenant changes a dispensation. But I think that with every dispensation shift, there is related revelation shift, and it's almost always in the form of a covenant. Uh, 
So this, there's a shift. The, the uh, curse of Genesis 3, 7 to 19 is also the uh, Adamic covenant. It is a modification of the original creation covenant due to sin entering into creation. It brings with it the responsibility of animal sacrifice uh, outlined and implied by uh, God's sacrifice of an animal in order to uh, provide clothing for uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, They fail. There's evil and wickedness on the earth. There is the infiltration of the sons of God, which are uh, the uh, fallen angels, a demonic infiltration, an attempt to destroy the genetic purity of the human race in order to prevent the coming of Messiah. And the result of that is, uh, I still need to change that on the overhead, uh, the worldwide flood, the Noahic flood outlined in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. When they come off the ark, God makes a new covenant with Noah and establishes human government. This is the Noahic covenant. God said to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And that term goes back to the original creation covenant with its modifications. That's outlined in Genesis 9, 1 through 17, the sign of the Noahic covenant the rainbow, and it uh, authorizes and mandates capital punishment. Man is also given the responsibility of scattering and filling the earth in Genesis 9, 7, but man fails to do that, gathers together in rebellion against God, builds the Tower of Babel to assert his own ability against God. Genesis 11:1 through 4, in effect, it's viewed as an act of war against God, and God penalizes man with the confusion of human languages in Genesis 11, 5 through 9. Then there is a major shift. It's at this point that we go into the age of Israel because God no longer works through the human race as a whole, And we have a new covenant given, which is the Abrahamic covenant. And so the dispensation shift is from human government to patriarchs. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and numerous other passages. The responsibility is that the descendants of Abraham are to stay a distinct people and not to... That should be Genesis 17, 14. They are not to be associated with the inhabitants of the land. They fail to do that. They were intermarrying by the time you get to the uh, fourth generation or third generation, Isaac, Jacob, and then uh, Jacob's sons. They are intermarrying with the Canaanites in the land. So God sends them into bondage in Egypt in order to protect them because the Egyptians were quite um, uh, racist and they did not want to have anything to do with any Semites. Then when God brought them out of the land at Mount Sinai, he changes or gives them a new code, a law code for the new nation. It's the Mosaic Covenant. Well, I tell you, some of these scriptures are really off. That's in, uh, that's in Exodus 20 through 40. Exodus 20 through 40. They are to obey the law. They disobeyed the law according to Second Chronicles uh, 36, 14 and are scattered throughout the world according to the promise of discipline in Deuteronomy 28, 63 through 66. Now, we have to remember these eight biblical covenants. Start off with the Gentile covenants, the creation covenant, fall, Adamic covenant, and the Noahic covenant, which continues until the millennium. Then there are modifications. This is what we're going to focus on tonight, the Abrahamic covenant and its developments. Remember, the three aspects are land, seed, and blessing. There are three covenants given, each of which expands a portion of, that, those, of that, those three categories of the Abrahamic covenant. The land portion is expanded in the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 29 and 30. The Davidic covenant is outlined in 2 Samuel 7. And the New Covenant is outlined in Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's begin with the Land Covenant. If you want to look at this in your Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. There are some people who doubt the uh, validity of this covenant, so we want to make sure we establish that to begin with. What you see on the slide on the overhead is an outline of what we will cover under the real estate covenant.
covenant. We'll look at the central scripture, persons involved, provisions, importance, the confirmations to the covenant, and its present status. So the scripture for the real estate covenant is Deuteronomy 21, 29, 1 through chapter 30, verse 20. 29, 1 through 30, verse 20. Now remember, this section falls within the Torah, which are the first five books of the Jewish canon. The Torah is called, the Torah means the instruction. Now, usually we think of the Torah or as the law and include all of that as a Mosaic covenant. But this is clearly a distinct covenant according to Deuteronomy 29.1, which reads, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in where? The land of Moab. The Mosaic covenant was made where? On Mount Sinai. So this is a distinct covenant. Commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. Horeb is another term for Sinai. So this is another covenant beside the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. So it is a distinct covenant. The persons involved are God and Moses and the nation Israel. This is outlined starting in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 29. There we read, You stand today, Moses is addressing the nation. He says, You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. Notice it's all-inclusive, believer and unbeliever. Everyone is entered into the covenant. It's with the nation. Deuteronomy 29.12, That you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God just as he spoke to you, as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice the connection there. This is, this is a direct link back to the Abrahamic covenant. Every time you see the, the, the three names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant. When we studied that last week... I, or several weeks back, I went through the confirmations to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. God reconfirmed the Abrahamic covenant with each one. Why do I say that? Because it's not just enough to be related to Abraham to be a Jew. The Arabs are mostly related to Abraham. They're sons of Esau, who's his uh, grandson. They're sons of Ishmael, his uh, son through Hagar. They are also related to through his sons, through his uh, second wife, Keturah. Only those who are descendants of Abraham and then Isaac, the child of the promise, because it only goes through the regenerate line. Abraham was regenerated. He believed in the promise of the Messiah. Isaac is regenerated. He believes in the promise of the Messiah. Jacob is regenerated. The others were not. So the line goes through the regenerated ones. And it is only by virtue of your relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you're a Jew. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have that unique relationship with God based on the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. So when we read this in verse 13, we realize that this covenant in Genesis, I mean in Deuteronomy 29, is not related to Sinai, which was a conditional and temporary covenant, but is related to the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional and eternal. Verse 14, Now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. Doctrine of resurrection. Remember I made the point that when Jesus was, had the interchange with the Sadducees and they brought up that silly case about the woman with, who kept having the husbands die on her and instead of convening a... Uh, grand jury to investigate the matter, they were more concerned about whose husband she would be in the afterlife. She married one brother, he died. She married the next brother, he died. So on through seven brothers, no children. And they wanted to know, well, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you're so ignorant of the Scriptures 
Don't you remember? It says, God said to Moses, I am, present tense, they've been dead for 400 years, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that from that, Jesus built the doctrine of resurrection, which the Sadducees had rejected. So the point of this is that God is making this covenant not just with those present, but also it, it, it goes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of Israel that is dead, and even those who were not yet born. So, the provisions of the covenant. We've looked at the scriptures, Deuteronomy 29 and chapter 30. The persons are God in Israel, not just those present, but those before and those after. And then there are eight provisions in this covenant. The first is that Israel will be scattered because of their disobedience. This was one of the penalties outlined that if Israel disobeys God, they will uh, suffer sickness, death, and eventual dispersion throughout foreign nations. This is outlined in uh, Deuteronomy 29, 24 through 28, where we read, And all the nations shall say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? And that pictures a time in the nation when the land itself will be under judgment and will be barren. And that happened, it has happened a couple of times in history. Once during the 70-year captivity when, Ab- when uh, the people were taken out by Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. And it occurred again at 70 A.D. when the Romans uh, dis- uh, defeated the Jews and wiped them out, removed them from the land, destroyed the temple, and uh, devastated the land. They are going to be brought back, though, and we see the beginning of that now, not the future gathering from the four corners of the earth, which is a regenerate Israel, which takes place at the end of the tribulation, but there has to be a presence. Now, this is stage setting. This isn't fulfilled prophecy. I want to make that clear. There's a difference. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture. There are a lot of people who think that something has to occur, and because we see certain things happening on the international scene, it's real tempting to try to identify these things with something in the Bible. We call that newspaper exegesis. It doesn't have anything to do with a correct interpretation of Scripture. Scripture says nothing. The, the coming of Christ at the rapture, when Christ comes, for the church, for the church-age believers in the air, he doesn't come to the earth, is distinct from his second coming. The signs of the times all relate to his second coming. But there are certain things that take place during the tribulation. At the beginning of the tribulation, in fact, what kicks off the tribulation is outlined in Daniel chapter 9. And there we're told that the prince who is to come will make a treaty with the people. Well, the the term the people is a technical term for Israel. So if the prince who is to come is going to make a treaty with the Jews, there has to be a formal political body in the land for him to enter into a peace treaty with. So that tells us that at the beginning of the tribulation, there is a political entity in the land. What kicks off the tribulation is not the rapture. A lot of people think that. That's wrong. But the tribulation is a precise period of time, as we will see, that's outlined in a vision that God gave to Daniel called Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. And that, that period of time consists of seven years of 360 days each. And that is known as the Great Tribulation. And what begins that period is not the rapture. It is when the Antichrist... The prince who is to come enters into a peace treaty with the people. That's what begins the clock ticking. So there's probably going to be a period of time, a transition period, between the rapture of the church and this peace treaty. It may be two days. It may be two weeks, two months. I don't think it will be very long. You can look at Scripture. There are other transition periods. Christ, Christ, was, Christ was crucified. That was the end of the law. But it was another 50 days before he was he ascended and the Holy Spirit descended and gave birth to the church on the day of Pentecost. So that was a seven, roughly a seven-week transition period 
that was uh, sort of neither fish nor fowl, so to speak. It wasn't truly uh, under the age of Israel, but it wasn't church age either because the Holy Spirit hadn't come. And there are going to be, there are other clear transition periods like that in, in the Scriptures. There's a transition at the end of the tribulation as well. That's why there's a couple of different number figures. So all that is to say that there will be, there will be a return of unregenerate Jews to the land. Not, clearly not all of Israel. There's more Jews living in New York City than there are in Israel right now. Uh, there will clearly be a return to the land of unregenerate Israel in preparation for the tribulation, but that is not the regathering promised in these passages. Okay, back to Deuteronomy 29:25. Then men shall say, as they look upon the devastation and the judgment on, the, on Israel, men shall say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord. That means they broke the uh, covenant of the Lord. They broke the Mosaic covenant. The God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. So that means that they, idolatry is the primary purpose or reason behind their uh, discipline and removal from the land. Violation of the first two commandments. Deuteronomy 29:27. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in, the, in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. So this is a reference, a prophecy of what we see today. The Jews are scattered all over the earth. I saw a special on A&E, I think it was, about six months ago on the 12 lost tribes or the 10 lost tribes. And it was interesting because it showed people in in China, who looked Chinese. You couldn't tell them any different from anybody else in China. And yet, their papers, everybody has to have papers, their papers were still stamped Jew, and there hadn't been a synagogue in this town for about 100 years because there were less than 10 Jews there. But these people still had Jew on their passports. Same thing, they went into other areas like up in Kyrgyzstan and Afghanistan and Bangladesh where there were these small little enclaves of people who had a tradition going back uh, hundreds of years that they were Jewish. And yet there's obviously been intermarriage along the way, and they didn't look any different from the ethnic tribes around them. But yet they still had this uh, tradition of being Jewish. They're scattered throughout every land all over the earth. We're told, secondly, the second provision is that ultimately, though they would be removed from the land, Israel will repent. This takes place at the end of the tribulation. Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. So Deuteronomy 32 looks forward to the uh, repentance of Israel at the end of the tribulation. Then verse 3, brings up the third point, after this repentance, Messiah will return. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, I want you to notice that the regathering occurs after the repentance. There's been no national repentance that I've noticed on the part of Israel. So the return of Jews to the land since 1948 and and before that is not related to the fulfillment of this prophecy. God will restore them to the land once they repent. So this is talking about the uh, end of the tribulation regathering, not the uh, unregenerate regathering at the beginning of the tribulation. The fourth provision of the covenant, they will be regathered for the final restoration in the land. Verses 3 and 4 of Deuteronomy 30. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will regather you, and from there He will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So this is a picture of a tremendous blessing and physical, material prosperity in the land. 
a bountiful land that only takes place after repentance and after regathering. So this is a picture of the fact that the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant, which outlined the boundaries of the land, the river Euphrates, the river uh, of Egypt, the uh, Mediterranean, and the uh, Persian Empire, that all of that land, which they've never fully possessed, won't be possessed until after this final regathering. Fifth provision. That should be five, not six. Israel will possess and enjoy the land. My numbering is off from this point on, so just subtract one. Israel will possess and enjoy the land in verse 5. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, prosper you, multiply you more than your fathers. Point six. Israel will be regenerated. This is in verse six. And Israel will remain a saved nation in the millennium. It appears that from this passage and others, that all Jews will stay, will be regenerate in the millennium. Gentiles will have, there will be many Gentiles who reject Christ as Savior, but all Jews will be regenerate during the millennium. That's what it appears. When, when uh, Satan comes back, remember during the thousand year reign of Christ called the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, when Christ, um, uh, at the end of, during that time period, Satan is bound along with the false prophet and the antichrist, they're cast into the bottomless pit. When he's released, he leads a rebellion against the messianic rule of Jesus Christ. So he finds a number of uh, disenchanted uh, Gentiles, because it says from among the nations, which usually means Gentiles, that he manages to, uh, they, they just can't stand perfect environment and perfect rule. They probably don't like the fact that he'll practice capital punishment and that there will be a... Uh, 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 a fair and just taxation system and uh, a number of other things will be present and so they will uh, he won't be liberal enough for them so they, he, they'll revolt and, uh, but Israel will remain a saved nation throughout the time verse 6 moreover the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul in order that you may live then the uh, seventh provision is that there will be a judgment on all of Israel's enemies. This is the seventh provision. Deuteronomy 30, verse 7, And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. I remind you that this is part of the provision of the Abrahamic covenant, those who hate Israel, God would curse. Those who curse them or treated Israel lightly, God would treat harshly. Literal translation. And then the eighth provision, the eighth provision is that they would experience the full blessings of the Messianic age. And this is in Deuteronomy 8 through 10, where it says, And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today, then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of this law, if you are to turn to the Lord with your God with all your heart and soul. So then they would prosper abundantly and have all the blessings of the Messianic age. Now, the importance of this is that it shows that the Mosaic Covenant, which was conditional, did not lay aside or replace the Abrahamic Covenant. That is, one contention is that, well, the Abrahamic Covenant was then replaced by the Mosaic Covenant, so that's not, it really wasn't con, uh, an unconditional covenant. But the Palestinian covenant, or the sometimes called Palestinian covenant, I don't like that term, the, the land covenant is related to the Abrahamic covenant and grows out of it. So those are related and both, therefore, are unconditional. And this shows that ownership of the land for Israel 
is unconditional and eternal. God has given them the title deed for that land. Now, the confirmation of this covenant can be found in Ezekiel chapter 16. This is one of Ezekiel's longer chapters. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. There are 63 verses there. And we will begin tonight with a word-for-word exegetical analysis of the chapter. Just looking to see if anybody's paying attention or awake. I'm just being facetious. Ezekiel chapter 16. There are five basic divisions to this chapter. In verses 1 through 7, God affirms His love for Israel in her infancy. So it's past tense and goes back to Israel's founding and and rehearsing God's love for Israel. Verses 8 to 14 relates the fact that God chose Israel from that time, and Israel was then related to God by marriage, and so Israel becomes the bride of Yahweh. This is expressed in the imagery of verses 11 through 13. God chose Israel, and thus the Mosaic Covenant is viewed as a marriage contract between God and Israel. Then in verses 15 through 34, we are shown that Israel is unfaithful to God and is portrayed as a prostitute. You trusted in your beauty rather than in the relationship with God and played the harlot, that is a prostitute, and were unfaithful to God because of your fame, that is they became self-absorbed and impressed with themselves, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. So this is a picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel to her husband, uh, Yahweh. And then in verses 35 to 52, we have the description of Israel's punishment through the worldwide scattering known as the Diaspora. Verses 35 to 52. Beginning in verse 36, thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered, through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols. Therefore, behold, I shall gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure. That's the idols, the false worship. Uh, With whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I shall gather them against you from every nation, expose your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. So it talks about the nation will be vulnerable, and God will take all of the nations and the false gods from those nations and use them to destroy uh, Israel and to remove them from the land. And then we come to verses 53 to 63, which outlines the uh, restoration to the land. Verse 53, Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity. The captivity, notice how God portrays them in in their idolatry. The captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them your own captivity, in order that you may bear your humiliation, feel ashamed of all that you have done when you become a a consolation of them. And it goes on and outlines how God will restore them to the land. Verse 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. This is the uh, Palestinian, the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 29 and 30. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Now, this everlasting covenant that is established here is the land covenant is part of it, but I think that that refers to the new covenant, which we will study uh, shortly. Then you will remember your ways, be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. And that is the confirmation of the land covenant. It's also called, as I've inadvertently said a couple of times, the Palestinian covenant. That's how you will find it in most theologies and some uh, study Bibles. But the term Palestine is, uh, um, is taken from the Hebrew word palesit which is the word for the Philistines, and it's never been their land. They only occupied a small section along the coast, what's now called the Gaza Strip, and there were related peoples up north in Tyre and Sidon, 
but they never, the, the, the Philistines never possess, possessed the land, and so to call it uh, Palestine is a misnomer and is following the uh, agenda of the uh, Palestinians, following the agenda of Satan, who is trying to disenfranchise Israel from the land that God has promised them. So it is the land of Israel according to divine title. Now that brings us to the final point, the status. It is an unconditional covenant, and therefore it is still in effect, and God has not brought them back into the land. This is promised in Deuteronomy 30 and in Ezekiel 16.60, and that is yet to be fulfilled. So that is the first expansion on the Abrahamic covenant, the land, and the second refers to the seed. Now the seed refers to uh, the nation as a whole, but has a more technical meaning in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as a descendant of the royal house of David. And this is developed in the Davidic covenant. So the land covenant is the first expansion, and the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is the second expansion. This will be covered under the following points. First, Scripture, then the persons involved. The third, the importance of the Davidic covenant. Fourth, the provisions of the Davidic covenant. Fifth, its confirmations. Sixth, its extent. And then seventh and final, its current status. So let's begin with the scripture. Turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. Now I want you to know, we started off talking about the dispensations. And I made the point that the dispensations shift according to new revelation given. But not all, and usually that's a covenant. But not all covenants shift a dispensation. When God gave the new covenant, or the land covenant, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, there's no dispensation shift. When God gave the uh, covenant to David, the promise of eternal Davidic kingship, there's no covenant shift. And when we come to the third expansion of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the new covenant, there is, when that is established, which is until the millennium, the new covenant with Israel doesn't go into effect until Jesus Christ comes back. So these three covenants are all related to that dispensation. But when they're given, there is no dispensational shift. They all relate and they will all be ultimately fulfilled in the Messianic or Millennial Kingdom. Now the scripture. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. Even from that day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will... Let's go back and look at verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. And that, of course, refers to the land covenant and their ultimate restoration. Even from that from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now that is technical terminology that God is going to establish the Davidic line as an eternal dynasty. That's what it means. I will make a house for you. I am going to make your line a permanent dynasty. I will make a, uh, establish a dy- dynasty for David. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Notice it's in the singular. After you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now at this point, when he talks about descendant singular, it's really talking more in terms of Solomon, his physical son. Look at what it says. He will build a house for my name. See, there's an implication there, an application with Christ, but it's the near fulfillment and specific fulfillment is Solomon who will build the temple. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Notice the next phrase. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of iron. That is not a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's a reference to David's son Solomon. I will correct him with the rod of men, the strokes of the son of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, that is your dynasty and your kingdom, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14 emphasizes David's immediate seed, Solomon. There is a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17, 10 through 14, which focuses more on the Messianic seed as the descendant of David. The persons involved in the covenant are God as party of the first part and David as party of the second part, representative, representing his entire line. So David is the representative of the Davidic house. C, the third part, its importance. The Abrahamic uh, or the Davidic covenant elaborates the seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant specifically in the provision of the Messiah. That from this we know that Messiah will be a descendant of David. That is why you have uh, genealogies in both Matthew and Luke. Uh, Matthew... Uh, relates his uh, royal genealogy through Mary, and who is the uh, humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Luke traces it through his father Joseph, who is his adopted. Father, so he has uh, rights on both sides, going back to uh, David. There are six provisions in the Davidic covenant. The first is that God will provide a house, that is, a dynasty for David. This is in seven verse eleven and verse sixteen, and in Second uh, Chronicles seventeen ten. Our First Chronicles 17:10, Second Samuel 7:11 and 16, and First Chronicles 17:10. Second provision is that Solomon will be established upon David's throne, so it secures the heir to the throne as Solomon, and not one of the other sons. So this is Second Samuel 7, verse 12. Third, it establishes that Solomon will build the temple, not David. David had wanted to, and that was the occasion for this revelation. David was trying to build a temple, and God sent the prophet to tell him, No, you won't build a temple. Your son will, but I will establish a house for you. You will not build a house for me, but I will establish a house for you. Second Samuel 7, verse 13. Fourth provision, the throne of Solomon's kingdom would be established forever. Not the person, but the throne itself. It is an eternal or everlasting throne for an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus Christ must return and sit on that, that throne. His seat at the right hand of God the Father now is not on the Davidic throne. Now, there are uh, some people who are teaching that. There is a new, uh, new uh, development in uh, dispensationalism. They want to call themselves dispensationalists. It's known technically as progressive dispensationalism. I think it is a, a, a compromise with covenant theology, frankly. And it has uh, gained a lot of uh, influence. But they make a lot of mistakes. I'm not going to get distracted by that. But one of the things that they do is they say that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom in His first coming. He inaugurated it and it, so we're presently in the kingdom, and, but it won't be fully here until Jesus returns at the second coming. Now, that's different from traditional dispensationalism, which we believe, that says that Jesus offered the kingdom. He didn't inaugurate it. He offered the kingdom. It was rejected and it was postponed. See, if we're in the kingdom, then that means in some sense... Uh, 
kingdom promises are to be expected today, kingdom fulfillment. And that's led to a lot of distortions in other areas. It's called the already-not-yet view of the kingdom. That's the technical term, that we're already in the kingdom but not yet fully. And um, it goes back to a theologian named George Eldon Ladd, and it's been picked up in a number of charismatic groups, and they emphasize the fact that, that part of the signs of being in the kingdom was, is Joel 2. And so that brings in the idea that we should be expecting our young men to see dreams and uh, women, young women to see visions and all of the other things that go with it, including speaking in tongues. And so we should see all that as, as evident in the modern church. And that's not true. That is bad exegesis. And what it ends up saying, they end up saying, is that the, Jesus is currently sitting on the Davidic throne in heaven. But that's not what we see here in 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17. And this is the, an earthly throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus does not sit there until he returns at the second coming. Fifth point, provision. Solomon will be punished for his disobedience, for sin, but God's covenant love will not be removed from him. Verse 14, he says, I'll be a father to him, he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. So as I said earlier, that makes it clear that he is not talking about Jesus, the sinless uh, Messiah. And then the sixth provision, in the Chronicles passage, the emphasis is on the Messiah, his throne, his house, his kingdom, which will be established forever. First Chronicles 17.10, Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies, moreover I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you, and it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you. Notice, not your descendant, but one of your descendants. After you, who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And that's talking about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be his father, he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So there is an emphasis in the Chronicles passage on the messianic fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. There are four things promised in the uh, Davidic covenant. An eternal house or dynasty, a kingdom, a throne, and an eternal descendant. Notice it's an eternal house that the house is forever. The kingdom is forever. His throne is forever. The physical throne and an eternal descendant. So that tells us right away, if it's an eternal descendant, that implies deity. And if it's a descendant, that implies humanity. And the case that I'm making is from this point, it starts to become clear to the perceptive Old Testament reader that the Messiah is going to be God and man. Confirmations. This covenant is confirmed in 2 Samuel chapter 23, in Psalm 89, specifically in verses 3 and 4 and verse 36. Although the entire psalm is a reconfirmation of the Davidic covenant, it specifically focuses on verse 3, verse 4, and verse 36 that God has made a guaranteed, unconditional covenant with the house of David. Its extent, its status, is forever. Just as the other unconditional covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the uh, land covenant, are forever and everlasting, so this is forever and everlasting. That's the terminology used in the, in the Hebrew, forever and everlasting. There is no word for eternity as we think of it in Hebrew. So the word they use is, phrases they use are like to the end of the age, as long as the sun and moon last, which is until Revelation 20 when God destroys the present universe and we have the new heavens and the new earth. Notice what it says in Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, that's humanity. A son will be given to us, that's humanity. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called, and this is where it shifts, from humanity to deity. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. The term wonderful, that should be two different terms. Wonderful is a word that is used 
only of deity in the Scriptures. So this indi- these titles, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, it's wrong translation. It's not Eternal Father. Jesus is not the Father. In the Hebrew, it should be Father of Eternity. It's a genitive construct. It is a Father of Eternity, which indicates His eternality and Prince of Peace. All of these are titles of deity. It's reconfirmed Isaiah 11.1. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots. Notice the stem of Jesse. It indicates that Israel, the line of David, will be reduced to a stump. And out of that, something new will develop. So the house of David, as indicated there, will be reduced and impoverished. Jeremiah 23.5 reiterates this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So that ties it into the same time period as when they are restored to the land. Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh our righteousness. So notice... He will raise up a righteous branch, and he is called Yahweh. So that, again, implies humanity and deity. So there's a connection between the human descendant of David is also going to be uh, fully God. Jeremiah 30, verse 8, And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bounds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. In the Messianic kingdom, Jesus will be king of the world, but there will be two branches of government. There's going to be a Gentile branch and a Jewish branch. And the one who is co-ruling with Jesus Christ over the Jewish branch is the resurrected David. He will be king of Israel in the millennium. He's referred to as prince and king. In relation to the Messiah, he is a prince. In relation to the people, he is their king. That's why you have the two different titles used. This is developed in Jeremiah 33:14. And following, where we read, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth the humanity of the Messiah. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, Jerusalem shall dwell in safety, and this is the name by which... She shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So he's called Yahweh. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit, notice a man, to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. That emphasizes his humanity. Verse 19 of chapter 30, Jeremiah 33. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David. In other words, if you can, if you can change the sun and the moon and the, and the, the way day follows night and night follows day, then you can break my covenant. In other words, it's unbreakable. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So the point is that as long as there is night and day, the Davidic covenant will be in effect until the eternal state. So it is clear from the Scripture that there will not be a reversal of this, that it is an unconditional covenant that will be brought to fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. Well, our time's up, so we need to stop. Next time we'll come back and look at the new covenant, which is the third development of the Abrahamic covenant. And once we get into that, that will set us up for understanding what goes on in the Messianic age 
and the church age and why those are important and the unique qualification or the unique characteristics of the messianic dispensation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we do thank you for the fact that you have given us your word and you have so clearly outlined human history for us we understand the past and we can see where things are going in the future and this gives us perspective and we understand how we fit but most of all we understand that in this church age we have a, a unique provision the savior has come and we have been given the holy spirit who Uh, indwells us and fills us and he is the one who empowers us to live the spiritual life that we might be uh, witnesses for you before man and before the angels. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the importance of our position as believers in the church age and that through this study we may be motivated and encouraged to push on to spiritual maturity. Father, now we pray that you challenge us as our understanding of Scripture expands. In Christ's name, amen.